Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. We here at the podcast are just as happy as you are that 2020 is in the rearview mirror. The studio was a ghost town for six months, and I'm happy to say we're filming multiple projects now. Along the way, we had to re-engineer our entire HVAC system to provide for the safety of our movie crews. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 2021 bringing us all a little more prosperity. We begin our second year of this podcast, and I'm as excited today as I was in the beginning. Thank you for listening in, and know that we definitely appreciate you being here with us. If you've listened to this podcast much, by now you know how much I enjoy a kick-ass philosophical discussion. We've got a great one today, Terrence Smith. Terrence Smith is a cultural broker and a pastor. He's the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion at the Buckhead Church. With a Master of Divinity from Emory University, he's smart, spiritual, philosophical. There are so many directions this conversation can go. Yes, I'm going to enjoy this. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Terrence Smith. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today we have Terrence Smith with us, who is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Buckhead Church in Atlanta. Terrence, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. How long has Buckhead Church had a director of diversity, equity, <laughs> and inclusion? Not that long, brother. Um, it's probably been only since September, October. Um, but prior to that, I kind of served as a consultant role uh, where I had really dual roles. And that tends to happen because of my own passions, my own desires, but also my education. Uh, kind of lands me into that place where I'm able to speak into things as well as my own experience um, that helps us move a little bit more forward than otherwise we'd be able to do. So the position itself, though, hasn't, you know, it's very, very new in terms of September, October 2020. What are some of these things? I mean, I, I think a lot of people have questions about these words we hear a lot right now, yeah, diversity, for sure. equity, inclusion. What do those mean? Like, tell me what is first. Let's start with diversity. That might be the easiest for one. sure. For sure. And then tell me about equity and then tell me about inclusion. For sure. I, I think uh, when I think diversity, I think um, quite simply just different things, different parts of your life, depending on where you're from. That's also an, you know, an element of diversity because it, it differentiates you from, say, uh, someone else. I also believe that our not only our backgrounds but our upbringings the our race the ethnicity that comes with that the experiences as it relates to um your age your gender uh your um you know your sexual preference or sexual orientation all those things are part of diversity and i think that the beauty of diversity is that you get the opportunity to really um you get to see the beauty i believe of creation whenever you understand that. And I think there's also a, 
um, an opportunity that exists when you're working in organizations in particular, or even just in life, the more diverse of a circle that you have, I think the more beauty your life has. And I think also you get a chance to remove some of the blind spots that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily be able to do. Um, I think in terms of equity, when I think about equity, I think about seats at the table, right? I think about an opportunity where, um, like I'll give you an example in my own personal life. When you talk about um, leadership or certain organizations or particular organizations, and there are people there that have been at the table forever, right? But they make the decisions for everybody that's involved. And whether it's a, a corporate business, you're going to have customers, you're going to have employees, you have all these different people that are expected to be a part of and on board with the mission and the vision of whatever that company or that business is, right? But in order, uh, and I think this is where equity comes in that could benefit not only just the individuals involved, but also the the corporation or the business. Again, I think that equity allows you to have those blind spots filled. Like I remember a few years ago, and I can't remember what company it was, but they, I mean, this is probably the case for most companies now at some point, they get in a lot of, a lot of hot water because they had an ad campaign that went awry or was something that was completely insensitive or they tweeted something that was ridiculous. And as a result, they got quote unquote canceled because cancel culture is a real thing right now. Right. The truth is having equity as an employee, as a, a staff member uh, and valuing equity as an organization, there's a win win because if there were people at the table that were say African-American or say Latino or Latinx, that were a part of that discussion at the table, A, the company would have saved the embarrassment, would have saved the the issues that came along with it, would have not been canceled more than likely, but also the employee or the staff member gets the chance to speak into what's happening on a daily basis and helping to understand and helping to uh, help people understand the value that they bring to the table. So it also shapes their own personal experiences. Um, inclusion. I think inclusion is, is a lot like the thing. Equity is a little bit different than inclusion because there's going to require some it's going to require somebody helping someone else. So like everything isn't necessarily, um, in my opinion, there's a difference between um, like, for example, when I think about um, equity, I think about the basketball game analogy. You may have heard this before where um, there's a basketball game being played. One team starts out with five players every basket counts for five points, right? So the other team, they have five players, but every basket counts as one point. So they're playing a basketball game. And clearly the, the team that has the points worth five is whooping up on the team that has the points worth one. Yeah, it depends on who's on each team. <laughs> it does. If you got LeBron or somebody, it's a little mm -hmm. bit different. Mm -hmm. But like for the most part, you know, that is a, a big difference right they score the same amount of baskets let's say they, they, they all scored 20 baskets so the team that has the points valued at one point will have 20 the team that has the points valued at five has 100 like that's you know well at halftime you decide to make the plan feel equal right so now everybody's points equal five right but remember one team has 20 at halftime one team has 100 at halftime right so if in order for the team that has the points valued at one point to, to catch up or to win, either the team that had the five is going to have to significantly stop doing what they're doing, right? 
or they're going to have to bust their tail, the teams that has the point versus one, to catch up. And so equality is at halftime, you say everybody's equal, we're good. Like this is how it plays. Equity is, all right, well, let me give you 10 points to catch up with what was happening at the first half. So that to me, that's the difference between equity and equality. But is that assuming that race is somehow equating to teams? No. I think it's just a, an example. I think it really is just a, a a helpful example in terms of something that we all experience, whether it's sports or whether it's understanding what's fair and what's not. I think that goes back to our childhood as well, where you, you know, you whenever you're a kid, you have this sense of, oh, that's right, that's wrong, that's fair, that's not fair. And so I don't think it's teams. I think it's just a great analogy to think about it as it relates to equity and equality. So it's more of a thought experiment than a practical attempt to actually do that. Right. Like practically, that's that's the piece that I'm trying to understand is, so then how would you decide who is what team? Like even race aside, yeah. like, all right, who is – is it the upper middle class? And then inside the upper middle class, are there all these layers and teams inside of there? And it gets so complicated. Yeah. Then how does the how does the analogy or the thought experiment have a practical application? I think the practical practical application in it is um, to just understand, for starters, that this is the world we live in. I think that's the bottom line for it for me. Like, truthfully, some people got advantages to begin with. Like, like. Like, even for me, when I think about the idea of privilege, right, like privilege is a big issue and a big challenge for a lot of people to accept. Like, particularly when you say things like white privilege, that is like, no, my God, set the whole barn on fire. That is the thing. But in reality, like all of us. Trust me, I have a lot of these arguments (laughs) with my 16 year old daughter. too. Yeah, bro. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the truth. Like when you put white in front of the privilege, it it becomes this thing where, again, you set the whole barn on fire. Oh, I don't uh, I work for everything I have. No one's saying that you didn't work for everything you have. Like, that is that is good. Mm-hmm. However, there are certain advantages that we all have in life that, for example, I'm six foot one. Like, one of the things, that the benefits of that is being if I see a little old lady in a grocery store and she can't reach the top shelf, I'm going to help grab the thing for her. That's a privilege, right? That We all kind of do those things. We have that in us, I believe, innately. Does she get the stuff from the bottom shelf for you? <laughs> It would be helpful, but I can get it for myself. (laughs) (laughs) But we all have it. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, but that's we're all born with some sort, some sort of advantage or some sort of privilege, like even being born in America. Like, yeah, even everything that's going on, like still to be in America is an incredible advantage and it's an incredible blessing. Let's try to keep it that way. Hey, bro, listen, I'm with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm with it, man. Even with all the crazy stuff going on. Well, I I still I tell people all the time, I say, you know, this is the worst country on the entire planet wow except for all the others <laughs> you're on to a point bro <laughs> you're on something man i'm telling you it, it that's the and i think that is uh that that makes me think about like even being in all of this stuff right we're in a a crazy time um i mean what we saw last week was insane i don't think that most people thought that that would be something that would happen um it was insane on every level yeah like mm-hmm. it it really it really is and to be honest like i i felt like i saw this coming six years ago whenever like saw what coming this the the, the culture war of this yeah, magnitude yeah yeah and um because when you think about like what we begin seeing during the campaigns was a lot of what 
eventually manifested itself in terms of the um the 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 fighting and the um the <laughs> what am i thinking just the division and i think when you add that to feelings of people feeling like they're losing something i think that is part of the recipe to see what we saw this past week or the six well i think i think in decades past there was a deeper sense of commonality about what it means to be an american hmm. that feels like it's lacking right now hmm. like it, it'd be really hard to get disparate groups together right now and say make a list that you can agree on about what it means to be an american hmm. and that's that that's really frightening for me because i, I you know i look at America as the, the most amazing experiment in social psychology and freedom and uh, diversity and economic development that, that the history of mankind has ever seen. Yeah. And it feels like our forefathers gave us an incredible roadmap for an ease of list making mm. as to what it means to be an American. Mm -hmm. And that feels like it's lost right now. I think that when you, when you say, I would love to hear more about when you say, you know, this common thing. What what do you mean, like by that? Uh, from our forefathers, oh, like, like com your common values. When you yeah, say, common you say values. Like, like you know, I think that um, you know the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution mm -hmm. give us a really clean roadmap from a what does it mean to be an American standpoint, where we say things like, well, Americans provide for the common defense. Hmm. So Americans fundamentally as Americans yeah. believe in military yeah. and a strong military. Mm -hmm. Why? To protect freedom. Mm -hmm. Why do we want domestic tranquility? Why are we going to have police forces? Yeah. Let's say only to protect freedom. So mm -hmm. if they're not doing that job, yeah. then they, there needs to be reform. Yeah. If the military isn't protecting us and, and when it, protecting, I don't mean keeping us alive. I mean keeping the American experiment alive mm. of individual human freedom. Mm -hmm. So if the if the um, if the military isn't doing that job, the military needs to be reformed. If the police force isn't providing for dom domestic tranquility, it needs to be reformed. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, ultimately, the the fundamental aspect of being an American is the pursuit of life, liberty, and mm -hmm. happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I th I think that I think. Hearing your perspective on that, I think is helpful because as a black person in America, it's a little bit different. Like those things are absolutely I agree with 100 percent. But I think even the experiences themselves. And I think um, when I think about America, again, I think that is the greatest place on earth, man. I think it's the greatest country. And I think that is one of the things that also it's like this. Whenever you talked about the 16 year old daughter. Whenever there are things that you you have hopes for your 16 year old daughter, right? You want her to be the best ever. You want her to be an incredible human. You want her to give back to society. And at the same time, because you have those expectations, there, there are moments when you have to call her out. Like there are moments where you got to be like, that's not what's up. Like that, that's, that's not, and I think you're that, better than that. Yeah. 100%. And I think that that is, that has been like for a lot of people, the experience of being black in America has been like that. Where it's like, hey, listen, we all have the same ideals in terms of what our hopes are, what our dreams are. But at the same time, we're better than this. Like we can't we can't. Mm -mm, this is not OK. This is something that we have to 
who's not who who's who needs to improve well I who, think, who's being called out in that sentence well i think in in, in this particular sentence I, i'm just thinking about overall like the ideals and the things that we find our value in or our treasures are in in terms of whether it's the government whether it is um the police forces whatever the case may be i think you can run your hands through a lot of the different entities and find that 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 conversation or that part of that sentence was applicable you know what i'm saying i think um in this case, you know, coming off of 2020, we saw things like Ahmaud Arbery. We saw things like George Floyd, you know, like we saw Breonna Taylor and all the things that happened. And I think the the very um, recent showing of what happened at the Capitol is also telling to, to who we are in America as well. You know, like the response to that versus some of the responses we saw from the nonviolent situations and the protests that happened in the past summer. So, like. It's, and I think that's even one of the more challenging and the heartbreaking things about what happened on January 6th for, for me as a black man in America. It was like a I, I've always known um, that there's there's a difference, meaning like there's a difference in America in terms of your America as, you know, you and my America as me in terms of the history behind it. Like there's a, there's a layered history that comes with, you know, when I walk into a room, like I, a, I can't hide my, my skin color. You know what I'm saying? I don't have uh, the privilege of being able to do that, which is, you know, in itself a, a challenge and a change sometimes, but also my experiences, the pain and the overall um, history that, that accompanies me wherever I go. And I think that looking at what happened on January 6th was like, we we've we've always known that there was a difference, but this right here really showed us this. There there was a huge difference. Like just seeing the responses, man. Seeing the responses to how everything was. If you would, you know, looking back over the summer, when you talk about protesters who were protesting against police brutality, they had the National Guard and and you know ready. Like I mean, ready. Versus what we saw on January six, it was like, hey y'all, come on in. Like, like, that's actually the part of the whole thing that I don't understand at all. Yeah, is um, one how people that were unarmed broke into the Capitol. Yeah, and two how the people that broke into the Capitol more weren't shot dead. Yes, that that I think that is the thing that is mind blowing for me, Ryan. Like, again, I, I I this is what I think. I think had that been black people, I think we're talking about one of the largest massacres on U.S. soil. Like straight up, because as a, as a whole, I feel like we've been um, killed or shot for less. You know, like when you talk about police brutality, right? You talk about George Floyd. You talk about um, Philando Castile. You talk about Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old and had a, a toy pistol and was shot within a matter of 10 to 15 seconds. Like, but at the same time, people that were, you know, on their way, at least what it looks like allegedly, to kidnap our representatives and our our who people that have been elected to right. represent us, it, it's just, it's just mind blowing. Now me. I will tell you, like I've I've watched a lot of that video, mm-hmm. and I've watched uh, videos that were put out by Americans, put watch videos put out by Europeans. Yeah. I've seen, I feel like the um, extreme version of what narrative people are trying to tell about yeah. what happened to the Capitol. I feel like I've seen the opposite, which is the, the, you know, people trying to minimize it. Yeah. And 
I don't really feel like I have a true understanding of what actually was going to happen. It feels it feels intuitive to me, intuitively to me like yahoos, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It feels like guys in uh, buffalo hats and <laughs> and dudes waving at cameras, yeah. taking away Nancy Pelosi's lectern, <laughs> and guys smoking cigars or yeah. whatever they were doing in Nancy's office with their feet on the desk. It doesn't feel at all like when people use the word insurrection, it doesn't resonate with me right. that there was an insurrection because I know a lot of ex-military guys yeah. who are very capable with weapons. Yeah. And if guys like this wanted to have an insurrection, yeah. it would look very, very different yeah. Yeah. Than, than what took place. Yeah. Now, at the same time, I think what they did was insane. 100%. Right? Now, going back to what you were talking about when you listed out a lot of these, I've watched a lot of videos. Like, even, you know, I mean, George Floyd is impossible to watch and not want to weep. 100%. Okay? Yeah. But there are other videos that I've watched of guys that were shot that then, you know, there's been outrage. And I watch the video and I think, okay, I'm going to insert in this video white man yeah. instead of a black guy yeah. white guy doing the same thing yeah and i watch this video i go that guy's an idiot mm-hmm. that's what i would say I'd, sure. I, if, it, I and if i didn't For have sure. any if there wasn't any racial aspect sure. of the video yeah i watch this and go listen maybe he maybe the police shouldn't have killed him yeah but that guy was an idiot yeah. i mean he tased the police he right. ran from the right. police he pointed stuff at the police he went and reached in his car for stuff that's insane. Yeah. Like if I was doing that and I got shot, I'd be thinking to myself, that was dumb. Mm-hmm. If I was watching a white guy do that, I would watch that and go, that was insane. What are you thinking? Yeah. Right. How do you, how do you expect not to get shot? Yeah. Right. So there's, there's this whole spectrum of where I say, how much of that is racial? How much of that is wrong place, wrong time? How about, how much of that is bad decision-making yeah. on the part of an individual, white, black, Asian, Latino, whoever it is, Mm -hmm. just bad Mm decision-making that then I don't want to see the police punished for being good police officers who follow their training and then act like they did something that was racial when it had nothing to do with race. And and so that's the place where in this conversation I get kind of confused because I feel like I'm a really moderate center of the world, center of the the road American who looks at stuff going on in the democratic party. And I shake my head. I look at stuff going on in the Republican party and I shake my head and I say, is there any place for just a guy who, who, um, in the, in the, in the least white way possible doesn't see race? Like in the sense of like, I want to say, I just want to be a human being. Of course. And I want to treat other human beings as human beings. I want us all to have the same rights. Yep. I want us all to have the same freedoms. Correct. I want us all to be able to make whatever life we want. Like I'm absolutely against people acting like this is a Christian country. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I think Christianity is a beautiful religion. Yeah, for sure. But I don't believe America is Christian. Yeah. America is a place where you can have you can worship God however you want. Yeah. And I want to protect that. Yeah. I want to protect that for my Muslim friends. Yeah. I want to protect that for my Jewish friends. I want to protect that for my Hindu friends. And I want to protect that for my Christian friends of all denominations. For sure. Right? So where is that place that we can come together and say, everything's not going to be fair. Everything's not going to be same. But we're going to create a world of, of openness and freedom that protects everybody's ability to be whatever freak or whatever yeah. conservative that they want. Yeah. Yeah. Inside of this bubble of freedom. I think, man, I think that's the utopian. And I think you are a great human being, a great optimist, right? Like that is, that is the ideal world. I'm for sure. A great optimist. <laughs> yeah, right, bro. Well, like we don't I build movie <laughs> studios for a living. Yeah. You are definitely an optimist, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
like, dude, like, like the truth is though, like when you talk about, you know, uh, people getting shot or whatever the case may be, the, the crazy part about that is like, I think there is a difference because when you talk about biases, right. And like, we all have those, those biases, right. We, we have the, there's something about, you know, this person or this type of person that you feel more comfortable with, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's, that is what we've seen. I am, man, listen, I am all for people doing right and, and not, you know, putting themselves in situations where they have to be confronted by cops. So, so to speak, but listen, based on my own experience, right? Like, dude, I'm, I'm 37 years old. I've probably been pulled over 16 to 20 times in my lifetime. And that's it. Good for you, bro. Like, 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 I'm talking about, but listen, clearly one of us drives more aggressively (laughs) than the other. I am a safe driver, bro. Like I am one of the safest drivers ever. My wife will tell you that, man. Like, but, but the experiences that I've had, brother, have been like nothing that many of my friends who are white would ever believe. And it's all because, you know, it's almost as if, um, when you talk about two different ideologies or two different ways of life, right? And I think we all bring ourselves to conversations. We all bring our full selves to relationships. And I think that also is the thing that makes it difficult for us to understand and love each other sometimes, right? Because I don't see it your way. You don't see it my way. And all of a sudden there's this friction, particularly in the age of like, no, oh, I'll just find other people that believe what I believe and, and say what I say and feel the way I feel. And so like, Thinking about those situations, thinking about a situation where at, at, at 16, there was a situation where I had a gun. I was drug out of a car and the gun put to my head as a result of being pulled over in a traffic stop where I was in this raggedy <laughs> Eagle Summit. They don't even make these cars anymore in a car that wouldn't go over 65 without shaking. So, like, anyway, the point being, there is there's two different. What was, there, what was the reason that they. So they t- I'll tell you a story that yep. happened to me that was similar. But. Yeah, so they said that I was going uh, 80 in a 55. Mm, but your car didn't go over 65. Bro, it couldn't. Like, it, it was raggedy. It wouldn't, I mean... I Were you in a part of town where you felt racially profiled? <laughs> no, not necessarily. I think it was um, just the situation of the day, man. It, 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 there was so much going on. And, and this is a situation that I didn't even tell my parents until I became an adult. Because part of it I felt like was my fault and I was embarrassed by it. But... It wasn't my fault at the time. And that that the thing that about that situation, though, and I, I'm grateful for it, is that that hasn't it hasn't made me bitter. Right. Like that has allowed me to see a there is a reality, the things that I suspected and the things that my family members and friends and even the talk that parents have to have parents of color have with their students or kids sometimes like these are all real things. Like they exist. And there are times whenever you're going to find yourself in situations where you just know you better shut up. So that you can make it home. Right. That That's the goal. I, I got to make it home because that is the reality of you may you may not, you know, being in a situation like that. So, um, yeah, man, that that happened when I was 16. It didn't it didn't necessarily um, make me bitter, but it did make me aware that there is a possibility that something like that could happen. Yeah. When I was I was probably late 20s. Yeah, that's about right. I was late 20s and I went to play basketball in a rough part of town in Long Beach, mm-hmm. California. And shout out to Snoop Dogg. Yeah, shout out. <laughs> <laughs> I would, well, no, that's the really rough part of Long Beach. 
This was just the mi- the moderately rough part of Long Beach. Trust me, Long Beach is like 15 miles long, and there are layers and layers of rough when it comes to Long Beach. And so this was this was actually in um, the moderately difficult part of Long Beach. And I was, you know, dressed to play basketball, yeah. and I was driving um, an old, uh, I think, an old BMW. Of you mine. still hoop, by the way? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I'd have to probably get myself in better cardio shape. You know but I love to play basketball. Right. But I, you we know, but I, um, you know, and and I'm driving this car, and suddenly I've got um, lights on behind me. I'd finished playing basketball. Mm-hmm. I'm all sweaty. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's going on? And um, and I don't really think anything of it because I, in that way, I have a very white privilege. Oh, I don't expect to be harassed by the police. Mm-hmm. And the guy uh, walks up and I realize like he's got his gun drawn on me from the side of the car. Mm-hmm. And he, he's yelling, you know, uh, put your window, you know, window down, hands mm-hmm. on the steering wheel. I'm like, what the heck is mm-hmm. going on? And uh, he comes over and basically like drags me out of the car and throws me up against the car and you know pats me down and then tells me to get over on the curb mm. and sit on my knees on the curb with my hands behind my head. The other officer is basically has her gun drawn on me. Um and I'm you know I'm kind of freaking out. I'm like yeah. what is going on? <laughs> and all of this was over expired tags. So I didn't realize it but my tags have expired and in that neighborhood the cops were just on high alert. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter race, creed, sex. If you had expired tags, they were gonna treat you like a criminal. <laughs> now I thought that was extreme no matter what, you right. know, no matter who who it was. And it and it gave me a, a huge amount of empathy for my black friends that had told me these stories about yeah. how many times they'd been um over well, they'd been treated by the police with extreme caution. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how I got. They were treating me with extreme caution. (laughs) And and I think finally they you know that when they they got my license, they looked all they heard my story. I'm here and they're sweating. I'm in basketball clothes. And they finally were like, you know, go on your way. Get your they gave me a ticket to get my, you know, tags fixed and everything. And it was overwhelming, emotionally overwhelming Mm -hmm. to go through that. And I can't imagine what it would feel like if I felt like that was going to happen to me all the time, because Mm -hmm. frankly, I didn't leave going man, I better be really careful about um, the police. I, I, I said, I better be very careful to not have expired tags in bad neighborhoods, <laughs> right. right? Because police officers in neighborhoods that have more problems yeah. are on heightened alert. For sure. And so then they have a different protocol For sure. than if I get pulled over by some um, state trooper in a rural county. Yeah. And he says, hey, fella... <laughs> Seems like you got a little bit of a lead foot there. And I said, oh, man, I'm sorry. What was the speed limit? He goes, it was 45. I said, how fast was I going? He said, you're doing close to 70. <laughs> right? And I'm like, man, I better. I wasn't even paying attention. Right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, it was like, yeah. a, it was like it's like Mayberry yeah. and Andy Griffith, you know? And that's how I Barney would think Fife. of as right? Yeah. Barney Fife, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And. And so I can I can only imagine that um, that level that the level of anxiety that's created by having a lot of experience with police officers yeah. that are overzealous yeah. or worse, yeah. right, is a less than desirable position to be in for sure socially and psychologically. For sure, man, it it does. It takes its toll. It takes its toll on you. And and even I remember, and again, I'm I'm again I'm I'm for 
like people doing the right thing. I'm for police doing the right thing. Um, but I remember a situation when I was a, a when I was a graduate student at Emory, right? Like my wife and I uh, were expecting our very first child, and she was pregnant, and we wanted it. We were going to a Hawks game, and I remember um, the situation was. <laughs> We were driving, trying to. Once we saw that it was going to be a bunch of traffic on 285, we lived in Smyrna um, to get to Phillips at the time. We we're like, oh, we'll just take the streets because we'll get there. It'll be a lot faster than if we get on 285. And as we got on one of the side streets from our apartment, my wife had the like the visor down and she had the mirror up, mirror up and the light on. And I was like, hey, no. Mm-mm, don't do that. Like that's that's not. That's you gonna, knew that was like a something a something get you pulled over. One hundred percent. So I'm like, hey, that'll get us pulled over, and like I need you to put that down. And she was like, really? And I was like, yes, really. And so is your wife white or no? She, she she's black. Yeah, she she's a black woman, uh-huh. but she grew up with a sister who was a cop. Ah, yeah, okay. it's a plot twist, right? So uh, she'd never had that experience before because they were always in her favor, and they were you know so. So as, as you know, she said, okay, all right. She puts it up. I swear to you, Ryan, in less than 30 seconds, there was a cop behind us. And he's like, oh, God, here we go. So uh, get pulled over. And, you know, cop comes to the car, has his hand on his gun. And, uh, you know, just says, get out of the car. And so my wife is like, No. You're not getting, and I'm like, hey, 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 I need you to chill out. <laughs> like, like, turn, turn, yeah, that yeah, turn that down, down a little quick. bit. Like, I like your spice. <laughs> not right now, though, sweetheart. Not right Save now. Save that for later. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, no, chill out. No, no, don't do that. And so, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, officer, what did I do? What did, you know, he's like, well, just get out of the car and I'll tell you. And I'm like, oh, nah, you know, I don't want to do that. And I remember uh, her being like, no. And I'm like, yo you need to chill out like i'm we need to make it home and so uh finally i get out of the car is that a phrase in the black community you need to make it home yes for a lot of people it is i won't say for the entire community but like in situations like that i know there are a lot of parents that say hey that would be a known thing like yeah. you said that phrase and i thought i've never heard that phrase yeah there's a there's a lot of people when you, when you think about like what we're looking to do in there's a there's the talk that happens quite often in our community where it's like, hey, you do whatever you got to do. You know what I'm saying? You give them the tell, tell them and announce everything you're going to do. Make sure your hands are on the steering wheel. Whenever you're making movements, you shout it out, doggone near. Like you like, hey, I'm going to grab my wallet like I'm my wallet has my ID in it. My you know, like there's no quick movements, no sudden movements. You do whatever you can to be quiet you you be respectful as possible. And you make it home. And you make it home. That is that is the goal. And I think that that night, whenever we got pulled over, that's what I was thinking. I was like, hey, we just we gotta make it home. And you know, we get pulled over. I get questioned about why we're going that way to the Hawks game. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, because I pay taxes and these are my roads. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I'm I can't say that. And here I am. I'm I'm a graduate student studying divinity <laughs> at at Emory University, one of the world's, I believe, at least the Southeast, one is one of the finest universities. And all you could think about was Old Testament rage. Come on, <laughs> I thought about New Testament rage. I want to flip tables like Jesus, <laughs> but ah! but uh, but I'm and I'm sitting there thinking, man, and I'm like, 
All right. Well, listen, this is humiliating, but all right. Well, we saw that traffic was going to be bad this way. And, you know, why are you pulling me over, officer? Well, let me get your license and registration. Okay. Can you please tell me why you're pulling me over? Well, let me get your license and registration. I'm like, okay. All right. Well, here here it is. Um, I go back, run the license registration, I guess, come up with nothing. And they're like, well, you might have a tail light out, tail light out. And I'm like, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Can we go? Well, hold on just a second. And so I'm outside the car and the experience, I mean, it's just, it's just the, the tension is boiling. I, and my wife is pregnant. She's probably seven or eight months pregnant at this point. And so my concern isn't necessarily about me. It's, it's to her and making sure that she's all right because there's an officer on her side too. And so anyway, we, they let us go without any ticket, nothing. And she is irate and so mad. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that they did this. And, blah, blah. and I'm like, that's what they did. You know, it's, it happens sometimes. And she's like, why aren't you mad? Why aren't you upset? And I was like, because unfortunately, like, this isn't the first time this has ever happened to me. And she's like, I can't believe it. I, I just can't believe it. And, it's, and in, in a lot of ways, that's how it is for a lot of my friends that are white. It's just like when I'm sharing experiences, it's hard whenever you have been brought up to see uh, these people as like your, your, your knights in shining armor, or your heroes, to hear that there's instances or situations where things have gone all the way left. And I think the, 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 the part about it is that oftentimes we have given labels to people, we have stripped away their humanity in a sense. And I think we still have to understand it, that these people are human and whatever biases and whatever issues and whatever challenges that they had prior to putting on this uniform, they more than likely still have, unless they've done a significant amount of work to work on getting that out and working through that, or even are constantly in process of working through that. It probably still exists on top of, um, I think just the origins of the way that it all came about. And, and again, this isn't a diss. This isn't a, a, you know, this isn't anti-police. This is just history. When you talk about uh, many of the modern day uh, versions of the police departments, they all come from slave patrols. Right. Like I think in, in particular, uh, specifically Charleston, South Carolina, I think it, it is definitely uh, comes from slave patrols. And so there are there are racist origins that exist because that was the purpose of what it was for. Not all police forces. No, not all. Some police forces. Correct. Not all. Right, Definitely because clearly some. there were police in the Northeast 100%. where there was no slavery, but they still needed police. But they also had roles to make sure that they return any freed slaves to their slave masters. So it's still even... Well, let's go back to... I mean, in yeah, Europe, yeah. In, in England, yeah, there were police, sure. police force, for right? Sure. I mean, there, there's... 100%. Yeah, so it's not like police were just... Right. Slave catchers. And I don't. Yeah, I'm not saying that they were 100 percent. I am saying that it has a an undertone here in the United States of America. That was one of the roles that they were forced 100%. to play. It was as a huge role. enforcers of the law, which at the time the laws included the uh, legality of slavery and the illegality of running as a slave. Yes. Right. OK. But I don't necessarily fault the police force. Yeah. For that, in the sense that the police force are not the legislators. 100%. The police force are not the judges. The police force are just 
an executive correct function. But you you are well studied and a you know philosopher and all this you know so but you know that even with that there's still things to your subconscious that can kick in hundred percent right so like if you're accustomed to uh, arresting or seeing a certain segment of the population being consistently arrested or whatever there's something in your psyche that immediately automatically equates that to that particular situation well every every and when i say police officer i'm going to include fbi agents mm-hmm. enforcement personnel yeah. of some some sort or another they're all trained in profiling yeah for sure and some of that is racial profiling for sure. some of that is is socioeconomic profiling sure. um some of that would be uh tattoo profiling <laughs> yeah. right yeah you know where if they see tattoos on a neck it's game they're gonna film. they're it's yeah. it's game film. Yeah, it's game film. So they say, "All right, tattoo on a neck doesn't necessarily mean that he's more violent." Yeah, but I might. I'm just going to have heightened awareness. Yeah, for sure. Right. For and sure. And so the difficulty is that if if um, the more white collar crime there is, the more that you profile a guy who shows up in a suit, mm. mm-hmm. and you treat him with skepticism, mm-hmm. like he's there to take your wallet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that might be true. Yeah. 100%. Right? I know a lot of really sharply dressed people who are completely unethical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Now, my life experience has taught me this, just like my life experience has taught me that if someone wants to pray before lunch, that might be beautiful and that might be a warning sign. (laughs) What kind of warning signs, brother? (laughs) Well, I mean, it might be a warning sign that I need to watch out because they're trying to like lull me into a belief that yeah. they have ethics. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. And yeah. so that 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 sucks because you would like to think that if somebody <laughs> wanted to pray that was just out of like a genuine spirituality and, and thankfulness to God and, yeah. a, and a desire to share their gratitude with you yeah. and with the world, but it might be part of a ruse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's valid. That makes me, listen, if we ever go to lunch, I know. <laughs> I'm going to pray silently. I'm not going to say a word. I might not even close my eyes, bro. Cause I'm, I not want- trying to, I'm not trying to disparage <laughs> praying at lunch. I'm saying that there are genuine yeah. like genuine acts sure. that, that can become profile for sure. signs for sure, man. of danger. For sure. Right? That, that's 100% accurate, bro. That's one, and, and I think that's right. I think that that plus the history also makes for a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in. And I mean, you you could talk about honestly, we can go back to the policies, we can go back to, you know, how how uh cocaine made its way in America. <laughs> like like sure. there's so many different ways. If it wasn't for cocaine, we wouldn't have Sigmund Freud. <laughs> At least all the written down version of his psychology. Yeah, man, like, you know, there there's a lot of different, you know, things about that that adds to that profile thing that I think also makes it more complicated. And so, um, and then, you know, this America, man, again, this I think this is the greatest place, greatest country on earth. And and at the same time, like whenever you like I talked about with your daughter and even for my daughter, like whenever there are things that you want for people and and um things that you love, there's an expectation of, hey, we're better than this. We got to figure out a way to do better. And I think that that is ultimately what we're saying whenever you talk about, hey, let's not let's allow a person to get their day in court. Right. Like, let's not rush judgment. Let's not shoot anybody. Like if they're guilty, then we have a, a system, a legal system where 
you are, you know, you are innocent and proven guilty, right? Like let's let's allow that person to have their day in court as opposed to quick fire trigger like that. To me, that that that's all. That's the only difference. Like, no doubt. If you're wrong, you're wrong, right? That's like, right. If you're in a situation that you ain't got no business being in, that's that's what it is. But I think it's like at least have the opportunity to face your day in court and not necessarily, you know, have your last moments of life happen the way that they do. I don't disagree with that yeah, at bro. all. Um, so I've got uh, some kind of sociology questions for yeah. you around the around this. So obviously you're at a church mm-hmm. that is very white. Yes. Right. I mean, Buckhead Church is probably has a wonderful diversity if you did an audit of the whole. Right. But on the surface, yeah. it appears very lily, lily white. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up around white people? <laughs> That's funny. I So I can't help but to grow around, grow around white people, man. Mm-hmm. But so my upbringing uh, is very unique. And well, I, don't, I say unique. It's probably not unique at all. But my experience was that I grew up in a majority black neighborhood, like a majority black neighborhood. And in what city? In Wilson, North Carolina, which is a small town. Uh, we are known for tobacco and vinegar-based barbecue, my man. So uh, it's delicious. Barbecue. So good for the soul, too. Um, but so I grew up in Wilson, and my neighborhood was a majority black neighborhood. I had one neighbor to our left, our two, or like, Mr. Miss Miss Jean and uh, Mr. Eatman and Miss Jean was a snitch. By the way, she used to tell me all the time, and I we had problems with that. Is a white lady yeah, or black? White lady. White lady. Yeah, she was telling. Was me what, what was her last name? When you <laughs> yeah, said yeah, white. she's telling. What was her last? What was her? <laughs> e- Eaton. Yeah, Eaton. Yeah, I was we'll like, say that. Man, that sounds pretty white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bro. She she would tell on me, but I grew. But I loved her. I love her so much. Uh, anyway, so I grew up in this, in this majority black. She thought she was doing you a favor. She did. She, and she, she was pr- calling you out. And she probably was doing me a favor because I needed to be called out, brother. Yeah, so somebody, I, I was doing stuff I had no business doing. But uh, I grew up in this neighborhood, man, majority black neighborhood. And um, when I was in second grade, the county decided to bus my neighborhood to an all-white school about 40 minutes out. So I was like seven and and my parents and other parents in the neighborhood were upset because there was a school that was less than five minutes away from us. It was forced busing. Yep, forced busing. Wow. So, um, so there was, was that a, common in the South? Forced busing. So I don't know how common it is. It wasn't opt in. It wasn't like it wasn't like you're growing up in a black neighborhood where you felt like the schools weren't getting enough resources right. and you had an option right. to get bus to a white neighborhood that you felt like had better resources. Yeah, it, it wasn't any of that. It was hey, it was, this go is, get on this bus. Yeah, this you is can't the plan. Yeah, this is the plan. So this is what is going to happen. And that's wild. My parents, yeah, they, my parents are very upset and frustrated about it. And I remember them like fighting for it, and they fought very hard to no avail. And when I was in second grade, my neighborhood was bused to this all white school, and um, it was a, it was quite the experience because, for starters. I hadn't necessarily been around that many white people before. Like my town was kind of 50, 50. So I'd, I'd been exposed to white people. It wasn't like, you know, who, what, did they, what does this look like? You sure. Know, no, but was know? it, but was it socioeconomic segregation as well? Like re growing up with uh, white people that were from your same socioeconomic strata. So that, and I would say there was a lot, a little bit higher too. So it was a little bit of a mix. A little mix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, my, one of my first experiences was I, I had a, a little boy. I remember um, we were we were there like drinking at the water fountain, and this kid told me to go find my own water fountain because this wasn't from for my my people. 
And our and what I, year was this? Dude, this was 1990. What? 1990. So uh, I'm from, you have to remember some of this. I'm from the West Coast. Oh yeah, yeah, that's okay? right. Yeah, so yeah. You, the West Coast has all its own segregation that you don't even recognize. Like I can see it now more having yeah. lived in the South. Yeah. But when you're growing up in the West Coast, you think you're colorblind. Yeah, of course. Of you don't course. think there's any yeah, racial yeah, like, issues. It's all good. You got yeah. the beaches out here, baby. Right. Come on here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not true. But yeah, right. it, I, you know, I, I've had to I've had to face all of my own underlying assumptions about non-racism. Yeah. By living in the South. Yeah. Like, I mean, so that, that happened in 1990. And um, I remember thinking, I don't know why I feel this anger in me right now, but I'm going to just punch this kid. And so I did. <laughs> I, I punched him. And we ended up in, like, the principal's office or whatever. And I, he he told what happened. And I told what happened, too. And, and I he told get, the truth? Yeah. And I don't think... I'm like, he, maybe he didn't think it would get him in trouble. Well, he's seven. I mean, yeah, if he's saying yeah, this yeah. out loud, he must have thought it was okay. Yeah, yeah. So he said it, and I told what happened, and we just, you know, things kind of, they were what they were. And so I grew up. And you guys became best friends and then went to divinity school together? <laughs> Not quite, bro. Oh, <laughs> that is a very hopeful, <laughs> wishful thinking situation, bro. Um, but yeah, so that happened, like, I mean, almost instantly. And so that was my, like, one of my first experiences with white people. But as time went on, I ended up spending three years at this school. And um, so that was what that experience was. And then I came back to the city where I was for middle school. And our middle school was a majority black middle school. And so that was good because I got a chance to kind of see what it was. And by the time I got to high school, high school for us was about 50-50. And so I ended up going uh, after high school to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Which has a it's a majority white institution, but with a very strong black community and black population. And so my whole life, bro, has been spent in and out of these spaces. Like, and I think that is one of the blessings of it. Looking back on it, it's a blessing. At the time I didn't really know what it was, but it has allowed me and afforded me to be able to move in and out of these spaces, to have conversations, to be able to translate things, you know, because there are people that can't hear things and one language but i am able to hear this language over here and translate it in such a way that these people can understand it and i think that that has been a blessing in all of it so i grew up around white people but also black people and uh latino because i had some mexican friends and all that but and when you said latinx earlier is mm -hmm. that latin with some black is that i mean <laughs> no. how what is latinx yeah i mean that, it's basically the term used for latinos or anybody that considers themselves to be in that space these days latinx mm -hmm. That's different than Latino, yes, or it's, it's the same as Latino. It's, it's it's the same. It's like women and men are all included into that space. Latin ah, space. got it. Latin. Mm -hmm. So then there's, uh, you know, what's when I heard that term because I'd heard that term recently, not from you, mm -hmm. and I thought it meant Latinos who consider themselves to be black. Huh? How did you how did you get to that one? I I, I don't know. <laughs> Psycholo psychologically, I think I was like Malcolm X, Latinos, Latin X. Maybe that's like that's what. You know, somebody who's from the Caribbean yeah. who feels like they're, you know, Dominican Republic, yeah. where they feel like they're black, yeah. but they also feel like they're Latin. Got you. I didn't know. Is there a word for that? Nah. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so Latin X, now I know, yeah. means the same as Latino, yeah. but it's without any it's, it's more inclusive. male, female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. That's 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 the term. I, I You know, I'm, um, my 16-year-old my daughter, who yeah. is at a um, an honor school public yeah. honor school yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. Is educating me about all these things all the time. Bro. 
you got a whole professor in your in your home or like in your your family. <laughs> she, I mean, she's very very smart. Yeah, and I mean, bro, um, I mean come on, philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it, it ain't like you know, it's not like you pick cherries for a living. Yeah, well, you know, no disrespect to the genetics. Cherry pickers, it comes back to haunt you, and you know, in many wonderful ways. But there's times I that she's challenging me on things that I think aren't even worth talking about. Yeah. And she thinks are like incredibly important. Yeah. And it's not that, and, and she might not be wrong. I just don't get it. Yeah. I think that that's the case. I think that's what we're seeing a lot of like 2020, this, this like generation Z, they're about that life, man. Like they are. And because for them, when you're talking about like what's happening in America, you're talking about their friends, right? You're that's talking right. about their belief. Yeah. She goes to a, she goes to a school that there's a, it's it's probably fifty percent black. Yeah, maybe higher fifty, and then the other and then the other percent is probably ten percent white. Yeah, and then the rest is various Latinos. Yeah. of all different nationalities, various Asians yep. of all nationalities. Yep. you know Los Angeles. I think there's two hundred fifty languages spoken. Wow, and so she goes to one of those schools where. Yeah, you're yeah. talking about their friends. Five thousand people. Right, and, right. and, and it's a that, little village. That's the expectation. International village. Right, and so when you see these things. You're like, oh, snap, my friends are crying. My friends are hurt because of what is going on. So, like, now I'm upset because my friends are crying and hurting and they're 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 experiencing and they're witnessing injustices that shouldn't necessarily be the case at all. I think that is one of the challenges, even moving forward, like for the next 20 years or even the church. Right. Like, I feel like for so long, the church has been silent on a lot of the things that actually matter. When it comes to humanity and people's uh, and, and unwillingness to speak out on certain things because it creates discomfort. And I say part of the church, Big C Church, because not not everybody is included in that. Some of the, the Big C Church has also decided to do other things and to go about other things. You saw a lot of Jesus 2020 flags at the, 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 at the, the capital. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was insurrection. Yeah. Yeah. There was prayer. And I like all this thing to happen. Jesus but, was leading yeah, the insurrection. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no. I don't think Jesus would do that, but that's just my opinion based on what I've Unless read. Unless the capital was the temple. <laughs> right. And there was money changers happening. You know what I'm saying? So like, uh, but, but well, I think it's been trillions that have exchanged <laughs> just this year in the capital. <laughs> Maybe that's what the, the motivation was for wow. brother. I just, I don't like, think Jesus had a lot to do with <laughs> nah, it. Jesus had nothing to do with that, bro. Jesus had nothing They're to do with name that. only. Yeah, for real. You mm-hmm. know? Um, but I think that as you think about, Jesus is a rhino. Bro, Jesus. Do you know what a rhino is? No, tell me what a rhino uh, is. See, I love this. Yes. I get to explain yes. to you things that I hear from my very conservative friends. Give it to me. Rhino, R-I-N-O, uh-huh. stands for Republican in name only, <laughs> which is a disparaging <laughs> thing that you would say yeah. if you were very, very conservative and somebody who's a Republican <laughs> had socially left ideas, they would say that guy's a rhino. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Because like, even when you look at scriptures, bro, Go ask some people at Buckhead Church. They know what, <laughs> what a rhino is. I'm like, man. Well, you look at you look at call Jamie right? Dickens, <laughs> our mutual friend <laughs> Jamie Dickens, who is an amazing, wonderful pastor. I love that. He's dude, now man. up at uh, East Cobb That's Church. Right. She's the head pastor of East Cobb That's Church. That's right. But you call Jamie and ask him if in East Cobb Church anybody ever talks about rhinos. <laughs> Listen, you put me on game. I didn't know what a rhino was, bro. <laughs> I, I am now aware. So now that it's not code speak anymore, whatever I'm in a space. Dude, but I mean, even the ideas and the thoughts of Jesus, right? Like what he was about and his his focus was like 
he he was able to spend time with the people that nobody else wanted to spend time with, right? Like he did the things that were unpopular, and a lot of it like wreaked havoc on the system as it was, which is, I believe, ultimately what led to his death. Like they were like, this dude is messing up. He messing up the money. He's messing up uh, the 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 way that things are supposed to be here. We got to get rid of this Joker. And so I think people forget that. Listen, one of my buddies said one time, he said, Jesus invites prostitutes to dinner and he's a hero. I invite (laughs) prostitutes to dinner and people think it's awkward. (laughs) He's trying to be all things to all people. That's what your buddy's trying to do, man. He he clearly is not Jesus. (laughs) Totally different motivations. (laughs) Seems motivation actually plays a role in what's ethically okay. Yes, man. But, you know, I, I think moving forward, when I think about the church, man, I think overall the big C church um, is going to have to do a better job of that. This generation, bro, they're not about like fake. They're not about you not speaking out on the things that matter. They're not about you sitting silently in your silos while all these other things happen. And I think that we're seeing a reckoning. I think even as you think about the year 2020, all of our norms have been upended in a lot of ways, right? And I think that has pushed us uh, to a place where I don't think we're ever going back to what to what was before 2020 in terms of life, in terms of how we operate, in terms of many of our habits. Right. And I think what this has shown is that I believe this Generation Z, they're going to dictate in a lot of ways what the next generation of the church looks like, because they are the ones that are really about what Jesus was about. Like they are about that life. And I think oftentimes what has happened here is um, we've we've created or come up with a westernized, you know, nationalized, politicized version of Christianity that isn't necessarily what Jesus was about. That is well. Only Jesus knows for sure. But to this guy sitting in front of this microphone, (laughs) that feels like that for sure is true. Yeah. I mean, that like I think it was Dallas Willard that wrote, there's no bigger God in America than America. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was talking about in context of like the way that everything kind of bends towards worshiping America somehow, some way. So even in the space of like nationalism, Right. Nationalism, it can be very, very dangerous, brother. And I think when you start interweaving nationalism, politics, and you start thumping your Bible and saying that God told me to do this or this is what Jesus said, do. And it ain't true. Anybody can to take a, a scripture out of a Bible and make it do whatever it is you wanted to do. It's one of the you know, that's kind of what people do. Uh, Dallas Willard, can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, man? yeah. So I was a professor at USC for seven years mm-hmm. in real estate. Nice. I, when I was there, Dallas was still alive. Yeah. And he was a philosophy professor. Yeah. And so Dallas and I became friends. Come on. And uh, Dallas used to come to my real estate class once a semester and give a lecture about the spiritual exercise of the ethics of business. What? Amazing. Come on. Oh, yeah. He's fantastic. That Listen, I... I have studied a lot of Dallas Willard, man. That that guy left such an imprint, uh, like on my life. I remember studying intuitive genius. Yeah, like like for real. Like this, I'm like, how does this come from a mind? Like one person's mind. That is well, it doesn't he he the part of spirituality that he deeply understood 
is that you only gain wisdom by tapping into the wisdom of the universe. That's so good. That's so good. He wasn't trying to just pull it out of his own mind. Yeah. That's where he could make those like big intuitive synaptic leaps. That's so good. Yeah. What a what a gift. It's a huge gift. He's I, an incredible person. I now know someone that knew Dallas Willard. Listen. I might just be winning today. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're winning for sure. Um, okay, so you grow up, you get, you, you have this multicultural experience. What leads you to Buckhead Church? Yeah. Like, how do you? I mean, what, what were you doing before Buckhead yeah. Church? And then I want to ask you some questions. I mean, it's been it's early on, but help, help me understand how'd you get to Buckhead Church? For, for? sure. Honestly, man, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> For starters, I never thought that I would be in ministry or working at a church ever in my life. I didn't want to do that. Um, even when you went to divinity school? Even when I went to divinity school. Well, that that happened. Honestly, you talk about like the way that God moves and like there's a, there's a tug or a pull, usually for me, from the Holy Spirit is what I believe to be, where I find myself in situations and circumstances where it's like, I would have never picked this for me. But... I'm going to trust this and I'm a rock with it and I'm going to go. Right. And so uh, I'll, I'll kind of give you a bit of the story how I got here to begin with. And, and it'll, it'll kind of uh, hopefully tie it all together. So I, I, I finished at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And then I did a program called Teach for America and Teach for America brought me to Atlanta because uh, of being placements and all this kind of stuff. So I did that for a while. Jumped into corporate. How world. long did you teach? Just a couple of years. What did you teach? Uh, fourth grade. Fourth grade. Yes, sir. Amazing. Yes, sir. So that, that yeah, fourth so, you grade. Know, my very first job out of college was I was a, a teacher. Listen, the ties keep getting closer, bro. They keep getting, like, it's one of the most difficult and challenging and rewarding professions ever. Shout out to all of our teachers, by the way. Man, y'all have been holding it down uh, throughout this entire pandemic. And so I did that, you know. And after that, I used to, I used to come home frustrated and upset because I'm like, my God, man, like, how do they expect me to, you know, be concerned with teaching to a test if my kids can't read? Like I remember having those those you know inner battles, um, and eventually <laughs> I was teaching Shakespeare to uh, Latinos who barely spoke English. <laughs> same, <laughs> you and I, brother. Same. So I mean, it was essentially like me t- teaching Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> I couldn't even speak in Latin; it didn't really matter. Like, Some days uh, I would just read it out loud just yeah. so I could hear it. <laughs> Listen, man, I'm telling you, teaching really humbles you, man. I feel like teaching and being a parent like humbles you because you're like, I thought I had all the answers. I thought I could handle all this stuff. And here I am. I'm allowing a six year old to dictate my my moods, my emotions and what I do. How old are your kids? She is six. I have a daughter named she's six. Her name is Journey. And uh, That's a cool name. Thanks, bro. You know, I think she's a cool kid. Oh, the, the name matches the, the kid. Okay, so back to yep. how you got to Buckhead Church. So I got came to Atlanta, jumped into corporate world for a little while after teaching, and uh, eventually was laid off at some point because of the recession. That led me on this path of trying to get to know who Jesus was, the man. So I, growing up, I, my grandfather was a pastor, and very early on I saw the, the distinction between how people that profess Jesus were versus how they acted inside the church versus outside when I was like seven. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to do that because y'all are, y'all are wacky. Yeah. Like they would be in church all day and, you know, enjoy themselves. And the moment they would come out, Ryan, they would be like me. 
And I was like, how are you? You just spent all this time professing Jesus and now you're mean. Like what? And, and then they would also be the same people that would try to skip out on the bill for Sunday lunch. And I was like, this ain't right. So at that moment, I was like, I'm not dealing with that this. That was the good stuff. Yeah, 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 was yeah, it was. I'm like, I'm not doing this. So anyway, fast forward. Uh, during this season, I ended up, after being unemployed and, and getting up at 4 a.m. and printing out resumes and pounding the pavement trying to find a job, part of what I did during that season was try to figure out who Jesus was the man because I was infatuated with like, I'm like, hey, um, if Jesus really was about that life, like, or if Jesus was how these people paint him to be, which at the time I remember being like this passive guy that some people were like, oh, he just turned the other cheek, Jesus. And he was so meek and mild. And I remember thinking, well, if he was all of this stuff, how is it that a real man like me would follow somebody like that? Like that was the thing that that I was like, there has to be more to this Jesus guy. Like, there has to be. So I started studying Jesus the man. And what I learned was, no, he wasn't just this passive you know, turn the other cheek guy. No, no, no. If he was that, he would still be alive in terms of physical body form. So like that led me uh, into like this insatiable desire to know more and to learn more. And I realized, I believe that God was working in me at that point and, and creating something in me, a desire. And so that desire led me to Emory where it was like, you know, I, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a pastor guy. Like I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to go, but listen, I ain't trying to be no pastor. And then it got to a point where it's like, all right, God, I'm down for whatever. I just don't want you to have me in North to South Dakota. Like, I don't like cold weather. So that's all I'm asking. And so <laughs> I ended up going. And I remember the very first day, uh, it was like everybody going around the room. And they were like, hey, you know, what is it that you are going to do once you're done with seminary? And everybody had an answer. They were like, oh, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be a deacon. I'm going to do this. And they got to me and I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just here. I feel like Marshawn Lynch. You know, I'm just I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we go around the room. My answer just question. here so I don't have to be driving around <laughs> possibly getting pulled over. <laughs> that's it, bro. I'm trying to stay safe out here in the streets. Um, just trying to make it home. <laughs> that's it, bro. So I'm like, all right, well, cool. So all right, guy, I'll, I'll whatever. You know, I'm open. So I get there in my first year, I work as an intern uh, at like a local organization, nonprofit. And I'm like, okay, this is cool, but I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It just doesn't feel like this is it. And so uh, my second year, we had to work in like a church. And at that point, I led small groups of people between the ages of like 23 to 55 in churches. And I was working with the middle school and high school in churches and then I was also I'd also up until that point taught elementary school I taught pre-k the summer before my actual uh, transition to be a teacher in Atlanta and so I'd had every age group except college students so I was like oh it's loud and clear God that's it I'm gonna go and work with college students and so uh, I started googling like college ministries in Atlanta to do an internship and the living room at Buckhead Church came up and I was like all right cool let me just go check it out and see what it's about so I go and I get there. I meet this kid. This kid's name is Kyle. And and we have a conversation. And Kyle's like, man, it's so good to have you here, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's like, where are you from, dude? And I was like, man, I'm from Wilson, North Carolina. He was like, oh, wow, Brad is from Wilson. And I was like, I don't know who Brad is, but he's not from Wilson. And he was like, no, 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 seriously, he really is. And I was like, okay, whatever you say. And uh, so he was like, all right, well, let, at least let me introduce you to him after, you know, the service. So I'm like, all right, cool, man. So then I experienced the living room, which is a service, a worship service. And, a, and a, you know, there's a message and some singing and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, man, 
this right here is incredible. It's like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. There were college students all there, like on one accord, just worshiping and witnessing what was happening in front of them. And so for me, I was like, I've never seen this, but I want to be a part of it. Also, uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen an escalator in a church, too, at Buckhead Church. Caught me off guard. I was like, this is fire. Um, so I'm there. That was the worst car there. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. I'm like, this is amazing. So I'm there, man. And I see the Lamborghinis? <laughs> yeah, hey, they, they do exist. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, well, cool. So I experience it. Kyle comes back over, and he's like, let me introduce you to Brad. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's do that. And so uh, he introduces me to Brad. And Brad, surely enough, he was. He was from Wilson. And I'm like, no way. This is crazy. And so we start talking about the schools and whatever, whatever. Turns out Brad is director of college ministry. And the guy that I needed to talk to but didn't have any way to figuring out who it was. So I'm like, look at that. I This can't be just coincidence. Serendipity. But yeah, you know how it goes. So I'm like, all right. So I share with him. Say, hey, man, listen, I am looking to have an internship. I will pay my way i you don't have to like all i'm asking from you is an hour per week if that just to spend time to help me figure out what it is i feel like my call is and where i'm supposed to be and he was like all right we'll come back we'll interview we'll see how it goes so i interview i get Brad's the a white guy yeah he's a white guy mm-hmm. he's a nice guy too i don't know any black guys named brad <laughs> i know one <laughs> you do i know one what is he's he a- from alpharetta <laughs> I think I think this one is from Charlotte, but he's the only one. Well, two. I know Brad Doherty who played basketball at Carolina. Oh, That's the other. It's two, two of them. Okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Not, I don't know it a lot. Seem like a very black. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you you guessed it right. Mm-hmm. You did good. Yeah. Well, I, he was a, also a pastor at Buckhead Church so before there was a pastor of of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm done. <laughs> Dude, yeah, man. So I mean, I came back uh-huh. right, and he. Uh, you know, offered me the position, and he told me, he's like, hey, man, take advantage of this opportunity, which I'm forever grateful for. Because at the time, bro, like, I had, I was working, like, four little mini jobs, you know. Um, I had a brand-new baby. I had a wife. And I think at that point, I was, like, the oldest intern they'd ever had, which was crazy and humbling at the same time because I'm a grown man. You know, I'm a grown man, Ryan. So um, in that space, though, I began to, like, really be open to hoping that you know god was going to do something to show me something in that space so uh while i was there i sat in on all meetings that i could met everybody that i could and really had conversations just picking people's brains and before i know it um the lead pastor at the time he was like hey man let's go to lunch and let's have a conversation so we did and he was like hey you know if the right situation came along would you consider maybe not finishing school right now maybe kind of slowing that down but maybe being on staff here and i remember thinking in my head you know and my and my, my face was like yeah I'll, I'll pray about it you know we'll see how it goes but in my head i'm like man yes I'm like I, i've been working for jobs brother i need something you know serious so uh i end up getting the situation getting the situation where i got a job working in the middle school ministry and um dude it was uh, amazing like i'd never seen anything done on that scale never seen anything anything that thoughtful as it related to middle school students and the people that love them because there's some amazing volunteers that are part of that. Um, and it really just energized me. And so um, that's, I got there, man, was in that, in the middle school space for about six years total and just recently moved into this space for the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Do you have programs that are trying to create um, a greater diversity of race at Buckhead Church? I don't think that, 
specifically, I think that um, in a lot of ways, Buckhead Church is a beneficiary of some things that happened within the city in terms of its, our diversity, right? Or at least how it all began. I think now we are more open to it, but there's not anything specifically that, that moves to it. I think that um, at the time, several years ago, there were multiple factors that I believe played into how we ended up having more people of color in our, our space. Uh, there were a couple of things going on with uh, two of the large black churches in Atlanta at the time um, where members were leaving and looking for places to go. There was, there was a couple of things. I think the other thing was that uh, uh, former first lady Michelle Obama, she had the less move campaign that was happening around that time. And you had to come and it was happening at the uh, in Alpharetta at North Point. So in order to, to get that, you had to get tickets, I think, at Buckhead at the time. And so there was exposure. Right. And then I believe there was uh, one other thing that was very monumental in that space. And it was uh, Dr. King's daughter, Dr. Bernice King, uh, ended up coming to Buckhead Church. And I think she tweeted about it or something. And so those things like coming and be, being a member or just well, visiting like just one time coming up, showing up regularly. Oh, wow. Um, you know, she would be there and she would tweet about it. And I think those things were things that all contributed to a lot of the diversity that, that happens. Well, and I think, I mean, Andy Stanley, I think is also an intuitive genius. Yeah. And his communication is so good. For so sure. Clear yep. That you could be, I mean, really, as long as you speak English, then there, there's going to be something of value. Yep. That that man will teach. 100%. You. And, that, and that was the thing that for me was amazing. I'm like, this dude, his level of clarity and the things that he was communicating what he was communicating and how he was communicating. That was the thing that got me that and being able to get out of church and see the entire football game was also, that was, yeah, that was a bonus. Mm -hmm. So, and I think those same things also aligned with a lot of people of color in the Atlanta area on top of having incredible family ministry environments. I think that that was really the game changer. Like if you ask Andy, what the game changer was or kind of the focus is, or, or even now it, it is creating incredible family ministry environments where people can bring their students or their kids and experience things like, like no other. So I think that all of that combined um, helped to get some of the diversity in the space. And I think that in a lot of ways, and we've talked about this uh, as a, as a church and as an organization, we never set out to have a diverse church. Right. That was never the goal. Um, but I think by happenstance and by a number of things that have happened in the city, it has made us uh, more diverse than we were. And as a result, we were kind of playing catch up in a lot of ways as it relates to thinking about, all right, how to make this the best space for everybody right now. See, I'm always skeptical of planned economies. Yeah. Or in this case, planned sociologies. Right. So I love when you tell the story about the natural organic evolution of the cross-section yeah. of American life that exists inside Buckhead Church today. That feels exciting to me, much more exciting than um, an intended effort to create diversity, which I feel like often fails. I think it depends. Like, I think there's, I think to some degree you have to be intentional about, you know, creating those types of spaces. But and you I, weren't. Right. I mean, Buckhead Church hasn't been. Right. And yet it's it's succeeding in creating a diverse community. I think it's succeeding in having a diverse community. 
I think there's a difference between having one and creating one. I think the having one is, yeah, people show up, right? Like they're, they're there and they experience it. But creating one is creating, it's like, you know, beginning with the end in mind. Like this is what I want to have. I wanted to have, I want to have a space where people of all colors, ages, you know, race, ethnicities, whatever the case may be, know that this is their space. This is their place. And I think that we are still working right now, if I'm 100% honest, to help create that environment. Like we have some pieces, but I think in order for us to create what it is that I think would be the ideal situation where everybody can benefit from, we're still working on that, man. And I think we'll, well be that's working part on of you. That's like your primary job yeah. right, is to try to take the skeleton. Yeah. And start to put more flesh on it. Yeah. It's a lot of, and now I think there's a lot of potential for us, man. Like, um, being in this world and working in this world is crazy. It's kind of like working in a church world. If you drop the name Andy Stanley, it's like you like that is that's huge. You it's know, part of the pantheon. Yeah, right? yeah. It's mm-hmm. like talk. You know, it's like he's like the the LeBron James or Beyonce of church world, right? Yeah. So. Whenever I came into this organization, Protestant evangelical, <laughs> yeah, that version. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, when I came into the space, I was very excited about the potential for like churches across the nation to be impacted by having conversations as it relates to race and ethnicity and and the changes that we could happen or can, the changes that we can make. Because in a lot of ways, churches look to us, right? They look to us to see what we're doing. And then they emulate it. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And so thought leaders, thought thought leaders. And so that is so in my head, I'm thinking, hey, if we figure out ways to really move the ball on this in such a way that is concise, that is equitable, that is of value, then there's going to be at least 100 other churches to do the same thing, because anything we do and this isn't this is I don't know, sounding cocky, but like. There's a lot of influence that we have in the church world, and a lot of it's, it's not based. cocky if it's true. Yeah, I like that, and it's based on it's based on Andy and and the things that he's done, and that that man's a genius. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but my 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 hope was like, all right, well, well, if we figure this out, if we're able to take these tools and create this thing right here, then we might have a real chance at impacting our entire United States of America because there are other churches that follow what we do, and if those churches are willing to do that. And they'll have parishioners and people that attend that would also at least hear and have the seed sown in their heart, wherever the case may be, that will eventually grow into a crop that we would see fruit from. Mm-hmm. Right. So like that was my whole thought process. And it still is now. Um, and, I, and I'm hopeful of that because I think that, you know, with great influence and great power comes great responsibility. And I think that we are at a an interesting point in history where churches are changing and people are changing and the needs for um, people are, are in a lot of ways changing. Like you think about 2020, 2020 showed us a lot things that we thought would never happen or things that we thought we were incapable of seeing or happening happen. Like I think about how many, you know, uh, bosses are like, you can never work from home. <laughs> right well <laughs> you know so so so, I, so i'm like those same guys are like do we really need an office same same guys it's like all right well we can sell this building and you know but it's like you know i think that's where we are it's it's where you can i think that there i think andy says um that you you you're married to the mission but you date the model 
basically. So the mission is the same. You to, only should date models? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's kind of how I took it at first. But I was like, that's not what he means. Oh, that's okay. not what he means. I don't want to get him in trouble. He is happily married and having a good time <laughs> in his life. So, But I was like, the model, meaning like how we do things should change from time to time. So the mission, the goal should always be the same, but how we do it should should change. and I, you know, Or at least be open to change. And I think 2020 has shown us that. Like, man, like I feel like, at the core, human needs are are still the same. Like you, you have the need to be seen, be loved, be heard, and the need to belong, right? Like all those things on top of, you know, you go, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the need to be safe and all these other things. Like those things all exist. But I think it's it's how we um, feel those needs as a church that I believe has changed. Where it's like, whereas before, you know, it was a simple you come to church and come inside the building and this is what we do. And it's like, all right, well, I got my fix. I say, you know, I got my Jesus fix this week. And now I saw my friends and, and going about your business. Well, 2020 has come and all that's changed. Like everything is online. You know, like it's like, oh, well, how do I get this 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 need met? And how do I make sure that, you know, this feeling that I have inside of me, this hunger how do I get that field? And I think that that is what we are kind of in the middle of. And I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes moving forward. Well, we're out of time, but um, I'd love to keep this conversation going. We For should sure. do this again. I'd yeah. also love to have a, a greater conversation around um, racial education. Yeah. You know, both sides. Like it'd be fun to, yeah. um, to have that conversation. I think there's a lot of people interested in, For sure. in those, those topics right now. Yes, sir. Uh, but um, this was, this has been fantastic. Thank Man, you for joining thank you, us. Bro. I really enjoyed it. This has been good. Appreciate you, brother. If anybody wants to find you on social media, yes, where sir. can they do it? So uh, I'm at Terrence A. Smith, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-A Smith, uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, website, TerrenceASmith.com. That's, that's where they can find me. Good stuff. Yes, sir. Thanks, Terrence. Appreciate you, brother. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Black Hall Studios.